Now, we are finishing this morning. No, I need, to, I need to say hello to quite a few people who have just joined us. Wow. Okay. First of all, a very warm welcome to everybody who's watching Over the Road in the Coronet. While Christian Live is away at the men's encounter, Dudley is taking charge over there. So I see his smiling face. Everything is well. All is well. It is well with your soul. Yes, Dudley. Bless you. All right. Yeah, thank you. God bless you too. You can sit down now. All right. So all of you people over there in the coronet, wonderful to uh, welcome you this part of our service. And the people downstairs in the lower hall overflow, people behind me in the overflow, you are all included in this greeting. As well as those who are watching on the internet, different parts of the world. We are encouraged by the growing numbers of people that link with us, former KT people and others who are linking with us all over the world. God bless you, minister to you, and give you something very special that you need today as we share together in God's word. Why don't we give Jesus big praise this, this morning for all of those people. I have been teaching these Sunday mornings in a series of life called Life Savers, and uh, we already have the uh, little uh, box set ready for you, and today's message will be slipped into the back. We've been looking at uh, vital truths of the Christian gospel. Uh, the blurb that has come down through the pulpit extension ministry is worth reading. In an age when many are being lost in the sea of human opinion and blown by the winds of doctrine, Colin Dye, c'est moi, uh, sets forth a clear and compelling call to return to the lifelines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This series unpacks four life-saving truths essential for everybody. The first truth we looked at was you must be born again. Second truth, Jesus, the Son of God. The third truth, the forgiveness of sin. And today, we're talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in order to present this to you today, I want you to turn to the book of Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. And uh, we've just been singing Hosanna, spoke a little bit by way of introduction of what happened Palm Sunday, which we're celebrating today 2,000 years ago. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to fast forward a little bit and have a look at just a segment of what happened when G during Jesus six hours on the cross. In fact, when Jesus was on the cross, he spoke seven sayings, and this will be my topic for the Good Friday communion service. And we're going to touch on three of them today. Seven things that Jesus said. Three of them are in our passage and reading today. I'm going to use this to show you how important it is that we understand Christ crucified and Christ risen. And just how much of a lifeline that is for us. Can you imagine where we would be if Jesus had not come and if Jesus had not died and been raised again from the dead? Luke chapter 23, verse 32. This is Jesus on the cross. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. 
And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It had been prophesied that the suffering servant would be numbered with the transgressors. And these two criminals that were crucified with him is a fulfillment of that prophecy. These men were robbers. But this, the Greek word used to describe them it means that they weren't the kind of stealth robbers who will break in quietly into your house at night. But these were those who'd go in during daytime hours, all guns blazing, and commit robbery, armed robbery, with violence. So in all probability, these men were not just robbers, but they were guilty of aggravated bodily harm, maybe even murder. And they, together with Jesus, were crucified at a place called Calvary. And this word Calvary is the Latin word Calvaria, which means a skull. The Greek word cranion is where we get the word um, cranium, our own skull. And the Aramaic word is Golgotha. And that clears up the different names used of this same place, Calvary, Golgotha. Now the name is not explained in the New Testament, but some suggest that it was a description of the topography, the shape of this place. And we have just outside of Bethlehem, the, uh, just outside of Jerusalem, the Bethlehem Gate, outside the ancient city wall, we have a place which is one of the favored sites of the crucifixion called Gold Gordon's site from General Gordon, who identified this, noticing that in the busyness of this site, there was a mound that had a shape of a skull. Now, we have absolutely no way of knowing that that's what it looked like 2,000 years ago, but it's poignant. Very interesting that this place is sited just next to one of the traditional sites of the resurrection and the garden tomb. Uh, but nevertheless, it was a, a description of something horrendous. Maybe it was just called that place where people were crucified because of its association with death, the place of a skull symbolizing death. But we know that during these six hours, Jesus was very active. Six hours of agony from nine o'clock in the morning to three o'clock in the afternoon. Great, great hours. Tremendous things happened. Remember that during this time, it was not a picnic for Jesus. 
we uh, still do not possibly imagine the depths of the physical, let alone the emotional and psychological suffering of the cross. It was the most agonizing form of torture and death by torture ever invented. But during this time, six, seven things Jesus said during those six hours. There are three of them here. The first thing is, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Seems to me to be absolutely astonishing when we find it so hard to forgive one another how that Jesus, in time of pain and suffering, the very people that were inflicting this upon him, he was able to forgive them. Very interesting. He pleaded with the Father and said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And when I read that many years ago, I thought, why is Jesus making excuses for them? And when I studied it more and began to realize that Jesus was not presenting an excuse, he was releasing his compassion. And if today you are struggling with somebody that has sinned against you, and you just don't know why they could possibly do it, and, and what is going on in their life, compassion will lead you to understand that very often people do things because they don't know how bad it is or they don't understand themselves exactly what they're doing and Jesus said you know what I can understand why they're doing this because their understanding is so limited he's not making excuses for them they are still culpable for what they're doing but Jesus flow of compassion was released on the cross and he said father forgive them they do not know what they're doing they are ignorant they're ignorant of who I am they're ignorant of what they're doing but Jesus was also able to commend all of this into the hands of the father because he knew Jesus knew what was happening he knew why he was there he says father what shall I say save me from this hour no for this very purpose I came into the world and the thief on the cross somehow the depths of which we cannot possibly understand just yet we don't know but he certainly grasped something of this that Jesus was no ordinary person and that Jesus death on the cross was not an ordinary death he that he was not dying because he was a criminal he was not dying because he had done something wrong there was a deeper purpose for his death and we discovered today many people struggle with this even Sunday school uh, children who say, Mommy, why is a Good Friday called Good Friday when such a bad thing happened? When we, we crucified Jesus, why do we call that good? Well, it was good for the purpose that Jesus accomplished. It was good because Jesus was dying our death. He was dying our death in our place that we might live and all of us who believe can spend eternity in the paradise of God with Jesus and our brother this uh, thief who came to Christ in his dying moments now what is interesting to me is to see how this man somehow grasped something was happening you know he first of all when he, Jesus was being mocked and saying you know there you are you save yourself you saved others, save yourself. Who do you think you are? You can't even save yourself. You're nothing. You're nobody. And in the ultimate act of rejection of the Son of God, people were mocking him. I want us today to own that that is part of our human nature. Our fallen human nature does not understand the cross, even today. Unless the Holy Spirit helps me, I'm going to be unable to explain it.
And today, unless the Holy Spirit helps you, you're not going to be able to understand it. For the cross is foolishness to the human mind. But as far as God is concerned, it is both his wisdom and his power. That's why the only way to be saved is through the cross. All of these life-saving truths that we've been talking about, in which the better-than-RAF helicopter rescue operation mounted by God himself, that operation depended on Jesus going all the way to the cross and taking in his own body the penalty that was due to us. Without that, there would be no good news message. There would be no forgiveness. There would be no regeneration or rebirth. There would be no acknowledgement of Jesus as the Son of God. Because it was the cross that brought all this together. Now, what we need to see is that this man was different on the cross. He was different. He wasn't joining in. He, he had something, something was going on in his life. You know, it's not just, friends, that you say, you know, the moment before I die, then I'll come to my senses. You can't rely on that. You've got to allow the Holy Spirit into your heart now. Now, we don't know what was happening. We don't know what his history was. Maybe, maybe he had a praying mother. I don't know. Maybe somebody had witnessed to him. I don't know. But we know that the Holy Spirit was working in his life. And he saw his predicament. Now, this predicament is, as I look around, nobody else's predicament today. I don't see anybody in the process of execution because of capital offenses committed against society. All right? So, you may say, why am I using this as an example? I'm using this as an example because each and every one of us has offended God by sinning. And you can't say, listen, I've never robbed banks. You know, I've never blown up a safe. I've never committed murder. Therefore, I'm not a sinner. Sin is measured by lots of things. The things that God has forbidden. If we've done one of them in, in heart, in thought, or in deed, we have sinned against God. And because we sin against God, we have dealings with God, which we're coming to. We have dealings with God. This goes right against modern society that says, you can't tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. I'm accountable to no one. And the truth is, you are accountable to a lot of people. But beyond that, you are accountable to the God who made you. Amen and amen. Discover that now before it's too late. Amen. So, something was happening Maybe it was when he saw the innocence of Jesus. He just couldn't join in with the rest of people. He was a man prepared to go in the other direction. A lot of people say, you need to be brainwashed in order to become a Christian. And I'll tell you something, friends. You need to be an independent thinker to become a Christian. The brainwashing is out there. The current is flowing in the opposite direction. This message of the blood of Jesus Christ was not popular in Jesus' day. It's not popular in the first century. It's not popular in the 21st century. It is offensive. You need to go against the grade. You need to go against the flow to embrace the blood-stained cross. 
deeper. When you understand by the wisdom and revelation of the Holy Spirit that it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses from sin, you will embrace the cross in the joy of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Something was stirring in his heart and he said, stop it. How can you mock? How can you jeer? Have you got no fear? Don't you fear God? Look what's happening to you. You are dying. You are being crucified because of your crime. And I'm being crucified because of my crime. What crime has he committed? No crime at all. And yet there was an official crime. The superscription, according to Roman practice, was the accusation against the criminal or the crime that he had committed. It was like a kind of deterrent. People walk past, see this public crucifixion and have a look at the crime that the person had committed. And, and it was a deterrent. Don't do it. It's a warning. If you do this, that's what will happen to you. And Pilate had written the superscription. What was his crime? And the exact words were, this is Jesus the Christ, the King of the Jews, the King of the Jews. And you remember one of the other Gospels records how some Jewish leaders were angry. Don't say that he is the King of the Jews. Say that he said he is the King of the Jews. And Pilate said, I have written what I have written. In other words, even Pilate could see that he was innocent. And his only crime was that he should be the king of the Jews. Now in terms of the laws of the land, anybody that walked around saying I'm king, you're in big trouble. Big, big trouble. Because there was no democracy. So if you wanted to be king, you had to get rid of the other king and take his place. And you needed an army, and you needed to be a good talker. You needed a lot of stuff. You couldn't just walk around saying you were king, because that was rebellion. So officially, Jesus' crime was that he was proclaiming himself to be king and others were saying, we have no king but Caesar. So there's a mass of politics and everything going on. But in the middle of it, Pilate recognized that it was out of envy that he'd been delivered up because this man was the king of the Jews. Maybe it was that this uh, thief on the cross looked at the superscription in the king of the Jews. Maybe he really is Messiah. This is my only hope. Yes, I believe it. He is Messiah. Jesus, when you come in your messianic kingdom, remember me. That's my only hope. It's like these people lost at sea, waving. They see a helicopter coming. Here I am. Don't pass me by. And Jesus threw the lifeline. But it was unexpected, dear friends. It wasn't. Yes, in the future, when all this is done and dusted and the kingdom of God comes, there'll be a place for you. Jesus said, I tell you the truth today. Today. You will be with me in paradise. I'd love to go on an excursion today to talk about the paradise of God. What a wonderful word. The paradise of God. It brings up pictures and ideas of the Garden of Eden where there was the tree of life. 
and uh, it's important it's an important description of heaven we know it is used throughout the new testament not talking about going back to the old garden but talking about the revelation of god and his presence in the new heavens and the new earth but it's important to know that this is not talking about clouds floating around somehow you know in the ether this is talking about a real existence a real place a place where jesus is now and a place where we will be with jesus when we go to be with him if we put our trust and our faith in jesus christ the paradise of god where there is the tree of life and we know that jesus himself is that very tree of life and so the thief on the cross said stop mocking stop mocking i believe it i believe it rescue me save me send me a lifeline i can think of no better place to come for a lifeline than the cross of jesus christ the cross of jesus christ is the key to it all now it's very clear that this man was saved wholly by grace. What could he do? What could he do? He had hours to live at most. He had to just simply do nothing but believe. Oh, that's the message of grace. That's the message of grace. What does God want you to do? There is nothing you can do but believe. But receive the free gift Jesus didn't say, well, I'm sorry, it's too late for you because what really you have to do, you've got to get down from that cross. You've got to live a holy life. You've got to go through all these religious rituals. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to do the other and keep on doing it, hopefully. And in the end, maybe you will be saved. No, he just said right there and then on the spot today you will be with me you ask me to save you i save you i throw you that lifeline that's why we have we are not ashamed to preach the gospel i know the process uh, of the holy spirit drawing people to christ can be a lifelong process or at least a long-term process i believe the holy spirit's working in all of our hearts to draw us every day of our lives from birth onwards that we might come to the place where there where this man came to and said i need you jesus help me rescue me save me throw me a lifeline amen but there always is a moment a moment in time when the gospel is put before you and you have that opportunity that occasion to reach out and grab the lifeline and when you do you are saved amen and there's a lifeline in this place today those of you who watch me on the internet there's a lifeline it's the lifeline of the proclamation of the gospel because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the preaching of christ this is a lifeline to you amen and amen he took it he grabbed it and what a, an amazing thing that it was it, it took place the grace of god the grace of God. And then Jesus spoke from the cross his final words. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This was actually a bedtime prayer for Jewish boys, Jewish children, boys and girls. There's the sayings, Jesus was so trusting the Father. Father, I've been to hell and back. You've abandoned me. You've forsaken me on the cross. 
And there was a reason for that. But now I trust you. Into your hands I commend your spirit. My spirit. And we know what happened on the third day. So these are the amazing things that took place. I just want to unpack it a little bit today. I'll tell you for why. Because we've got to understand why it was so necessary. Now, I'm addressing problems people have with this. A lot of people say, why isn't that that God, if he's so big and so marvelous, why didn't he just forgive? Why do we have to go through all this blood, all this gore, you know, all this kind of um, Mel Gibson kind of stuff, you know, uh, where you just revel in all this stuff. No, 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 no. Friends, it had to be. Without the cross, there could be no redemption. We know that Jesus' death always had a purpose. It's not just that God said, okay, you're going to have to be rejected and you're going to have to die. It was more than that. It was more than just a rejection. Otherwise, he'd just be a martyr. He died for his cause. But no, there was a purpose bigger than that. And we know this in Luke chapter 9. I don't know if you recall on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was transformed, transfigured, his appearance, something of his glory as the Son of God was manifested to a select few, Peter, James, and John, who are eyewitnesses of this majesty and of this glory. And it says in chapter 9 of Luke, verses 30 to 32, And behold, two men were talking with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory... And spoke of his decease, his death, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Accomplish. His death was an accomplishment. He was to accomplish it. Something was to be accomplished. And it's interesting that Moses and Elijah were there. Moses speaks of all the Old Testament law which prefigured this, which told so much about how necessary it was for a sacrifice to be made for the payment of sin. And also how the prophets were there, represented by Elijah. So both the law and the prophets testified to Messiah coming who would have to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Amen and amen. In John chapter 12, verses 27 to 28, similarly, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your Son. For this purpose I came. The whole purpose of Jesus' life was that he should accomplish a death. And the key is... In this uh, robber's statement, he said, you, you, you and I, we, we have, we're suffering because of the right penalty. We, we deserve to die. But this man has done nothing wrong. So why did he die? Well, it's, it, don't, it doesn't take much teaching and understanding to see that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he wasn't dying for his own sin. If this was of God, if God put him there, For a reason, according to the prophecy of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And as that is explained a little later on in the New Testament, 
in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For the one he was made, the one who knew no sin, was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in us. It's very simple. What happened was that God laid on him our sin and judged our sin in Christ. We know this from the lips of Jesus himself. Mark chapter 10 verse 45. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. To serve. And what was the greatest act of service? The greatest act of love that Jesus ever performed. And it goes on in Mark 10.45 to say, To give his life as a ransom for many. Amen and amen. 1 Peter 3 verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Meaning, literally, the just in place of the unjust. He took our place. Why? That he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Wow! Now, a lot of people say, listen, I still don't understand. Why, does it, why did God just forgive? Just forgive. What's all this talk about the cross? Why is it so necessary? Why did it have to be this way? And a lot of people stumble at this. A lot of people from other religions who are prepared to honor Jesus to a certain level cannot understand why God let it happen. In fact, they say, no, God could never have let it happen. Therefore, it didn't happen. And they turn their back on New Testament teaching. Turn their back on Old Testament prophecy. Turn their back on history and the testimony of people who were there. Simply because they can't get over in their mind how could God let such a bad thing happen to such a good person. Well, this answer is very simple. It had to happen. It had to happen that way. But how to explain it? I don't know if you've heard of the statement that says, it's not a Bible one, but it's kind of interesting. To err is human, to forgive is divine. Alright? So what they kind of say is, listen, listen, we, we forgive each other, just do it. Why can't God just do it? After all, he's God. You see, we don't understand how difficult it is for God to forgive. You say, what are you talking about, Colin? Oh no, I, he's a God of love. He's a God of compassion. He's a God of forgiveness. He wants to forgive, but also he is a God of justice. A lot of people say, well, I don't like that kind of talk. And when something goes wrong in your life, you say, God, where are you? Bring me justice. Isn't that right? Well, you understand that God is just. God is just. And because God is just, sin must be punished. The Bible says the soul that sins, it shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. So you can't have, just that, you can't ignore that. There's got to be a death if there's going to be a freedom from sin. I'm going to put it to you this way. I need some volunteers. I'd like somebody today who is prepared to pretend to owe me a thousand pounds. Anybody who's prepared. You are prepared. You are prepared to owe me a thousand pounds. Okay, come on. We're just going to pretend. All right. Okay. Can you make your way up here? All right. That's not convenient for you. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's not convenient. There's no steps here.
All right, sorry about that. Sorry about that. Mind your head, yes, mind your head now. All right, otherwise you'll owe me more. Than... All right, okay. So, you owe me how much? A thousand pounds. Thank you. We're just pretending now, don't get alarmed. All right, so uh, what's your name? Florence. Florence. Florence owes me a thousand pounds. Why does she owe me a thousand pounds? It's none of your business and it's not part of the story. All right, we're starting here. Okay, now I'd like Bruce on the, on the platform. Okay, Bruce, could you come on the platform? Bring, bring your book, No More Law, because that's going to be a, it's going to figure in. I'd like you to go and stand next to Florence, because she's your friend. Okay, all right, there we go. Now then, you owe me a thousand pounds, and I say to you, give me my thousand pounds. And you have to say, Let's try. Give me, Florence, the thousand pounds that you owe me. I haven't got it. I can't pay. But I need it. Give it to me. I want it. Give it to me. I just haven't got it. Okay. So, Bruce says to her, because he's such a nice guy, he says to her, Florence, I forgive you. Florence, I forgive you. Is that any good? Does that work? You forgive her? It wasn't your thousand pounds, man. It was my thousand pounds. She owes me a thousand pounds and you're going to forgive her? Irrelevant. Give me my thousand pounds. Okay. Now Bruce has another idea. This idea is he's going to pay. All right. It's a good idea, Bruce. So Florence, give me your thousand pounds. Bruce steps in and says, I'll pay for you. You'll pay. All right. Am I satisfied? Is she forgiven? She's not forgiven. This business can never bring forgiveness. That's the law. That's the law. Trying to pay an unpayable debt, which you can never pay, and even if you could pay, it's still not forgiveness. You got that so far? Now then, if I forgive her, we better pray hard just to make me merciful. Pray hard. Okay, I get it. Okay, Florence, I forgive you. All right. Who's taken the hit? Who's taken the hit? Who's just lost the thousand pounds? Never to, never to get it back. I've taken the hit. I've paid the price. You got it? If I forgive her, I must pay the price. I cannot forgive her without paying the price. If I forgive her, I must pay the price. You got it? So when God forgives you of sin, He must pay the price Himself. That's what forgiveness is. Okay, thank you. They did very well. Congratulations. Would you like to go around this way? Okay, gentlemen, help her. Alright. Wow. So, when you say, God, forgive me, 
Nobody else can pay the price. Because your debt is with God. And if God forgives you, he must pay the price. He must cover it himself. That's exactly why you cannot have forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. The wages of sin is death. The price is death. If God forgives, there must be a sacrifice. There must be a death. And this is what God educated us about from the very beginning. Without contradiction from the beginning. He gave revelation after revelation after revelation. To prepare for the coming of Jesus. Both in Moses and in the prophets. Beginning way, way back in Genesis. If you remember in Genesis. Adam and Eve had sinned. They hid from God. Because they were naked and ashamed. And in fact when they made their appearance. They had patched together some fig leaves. Which they thought were going to be adequate covering. And it's not adequate at all. And that's exactly what religion is. Religion is when we try to make covering for ourselves. To try and do it our own way. It's fig leaves which are not very good. Especially on a frosty day. Not good. Not good. But God himself provided the answer. He provided the covering himself. What did he cover them with? Tunics made from animal skins. Now to get the skin of an animal, you've got to take the life of the animal. Blood had to be shed. And that's what God did. And by the shedding of blood, he was able to provide a covering for sin. But it wasn't just a covering. The word is the word tunic. Tunic. And uh, that's exactly the same word that's used of Joseph's coat of many colors. Amen. That amazing technicolor dream coat was a tunic. And so God said, you know, I'm not just going to accept you back by covering your ugliness so I don't have to put up with your nakedness. No, God said, I'm restoring you to a place of honor, to a place of privilege. I'm accepting you back as privileged sons and daughters of mine. Hallelujah. Do you know also that that word tunic is used of the high priestly garments. They had a tunic which they wore. And when God gave them a tunic, he's saying, I'm not just accepting you back that you can just sit on the outskirts of my ways. I am restoring you to a place of usefulness in my kingdom. You are going to continue to serve me, but I've got a great purpose for you. You're going to serve me in my presence. You're going to mediate my presence and my glory. You're going to continue to have dominion. You're going to continue to rule. I've given you a place of honor and of authority, all by the blood that was shed. And it goes through all of the Bible. Maybe the next high spot we could talk about is Leviticus 16, which is called the Day of Atonement, where animals were similarly sacrificed because it was the shedding of blood that was significant on that day. Blood was, this, was symbolic of, of animal sacrifice or blood that was shed. And it's the blood that shall make atonement for the soul. That's what the Bible says. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Why? Because if God forgives, God must pay the price. Amen and amen. Praise the Lord. It also uh, perhaps is uh, depicted prophetically in the actions of Abraham. Where he, in the region of Moriah, 
was called by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. Do you remember that? Take your son, your only son, and go to the place where I will show you. And there, sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And the little boy was saying, what's happening? I see the wood. I see the knife. But I don't see the lamb. What's going to be the sacrifice? Abraham had not just a wise but a prophetic statement. God will provide himself for himself a lamb. And he didn't tell the boy, boy, you're the lamb. He didn't say that. He kept that because he was trusting God. The Bible says that Abraham was reasoning like this. Don't forget this was not some new believer. This was not just somebody being on their new believers encounter. This is somebody that was graduating out of the school of faith. And he was able to say in his own mind, God, the promise is in Isaac. Yes. And you want me to kill Isaac? Yes. Well, it's your business, but it looks to me like you're going to have to raise him from the dead. And the Bible says, figuratively speaking, that's what happened. Because Abraham and Isaac went up to the mountain. Hallelujah. And Abraham and Isaac came back from the mountain. Amen and amen. And here is the typical picture of what happened at the cross. God's only son was sacrificed. But on the third day, he was raised again from the dead. But there is more. When the knife was about to be plunged into the breast of Abraham's only son, his son of his love, the son of promise, God stopped him. And then there, there was a ram they found. And so that one was sacrificed in the place of Isaac. So not only do we have death and resurrection, but we also have substitution. God provided a lamb who would take our place. Take our place on the cross. How amazing. How wonderful. And you see, this issue is so near the heart of the heart of the Christian gospel. Man sinned, humanity sinned, humanity must pay. Amen? And if God forgives, he must pay. And at the cross, we see the God-man, Christ Jesus. These two great thoughts being brought together. Showing how important it is to understand that Jesus was not just a man. But that he was the Son of God and is the Son of God. God manifested in the flesh. And there and only there could God and man be reconciled. The Bible puts it like this. 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 to 7. For there is one God. One God. Wonderful. I like the way the Apostle Paul says, Listen, I speak to you about God the Father. I speak to you about God the Son. I speak to you about God the Holy Spirit. But remember, these three are one. Meaning, there is not three gods. One God. But He eternally exists as Father, Son and Spirit. The Father did not come and be incarnated. He remained in heaven. But the Son came. The Son of God came. And He became man. 
So the God-man, Christ Jesus, is able to be the mediator between God and man. The only one qualified as fully man as though he had never been God. And as fully God as though he never became man. The one God-man is the mediator and the only mediator between God and man. Hallelujah. Let's read on. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 to 7. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And so according to the Hebrew prophets and all the traditions of the Jews, Jesus is the Christ. And others just say, well, you know, I'm sick of this. It's okay for you people to talk about all that blood stuff, but don't bring me into it. I'm a 21st century believer, are you? You're a 21st century believer, no blood for you, is that right? You don't even got any life in your body without blood. Don't tell me you don't think of blood. You have a, you, you've got blood in your body. It's blood that gives life. Amen. Hallelujah. And the life of the flesh is in the blood. You've got to talk about blood. You've got to understand that the blood of Jesus was a sacrifice. And some say, no, 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 this is pagan. We have to go and kill some animals and sprinkle some blood because the gods are against us. Those angry gods who wake up in a bad mood saying, give me blood, give me blood. What is this Dracula theology? No, it's not that at all. Paganism would say, sacrifice something to stop me being so mad and crazy and angry. That's not what's happening here. Is God this crazy, bad-tempered deity who wakes up in a bad mood and say, I want blood today. No. God will provide himself. He provided the sacrifice. And the sacrifice was not a third party. Not saying, I'm going to punish you because of you. That's not fair. No. God took the rap. He paid the price. He is the one who forgives. And therefore, he is the one who pays. Hallelujah. Out of his love, he wanted to forgive. Out of his love, he provided the price. He paid the price himself. The blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. And so I find in this, as I find in so many things, that the very things that cause people the most problem and difficulty about the Christian faith are the things, the very things that elevate the Christian faith to something totally unique. They don't understand that God can be one and three at the same time. But that's at the heart of our message. For without there being the belief in the Trinity, there can be no fellowship with God, no relationship with God, no understanding even of community itself. If there is no son, if God does not have a son, then he's not a father. And if, he doesn't have, if he's not a father, he hasn't sent his son into this world. And we would not be saved. If Jesus is not both fully God and fully man, how could there be a cross that reconciles humanity and God, how would it work? So only in the Christian faith, which message we celebrate this Easter time, which is the heart of the heart of the heart of it, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the biggest lifeline we could ever, ever have. So I don't want you to let people eat away at your belief in God being one and three, the Trinity. Don't let people eat away at your faith on the, 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 the sonship of Jesus or the fatherhood of God. These are not 
just a few niceties that we use to decorate the cake of our message. These are the basic ingredients of the message itself. Don't let anybody draw you away from the teaching of God being manifested in the flesh. Of course, it is difficult to grasp. But if God could be put into the box of human natural religion, we wouldn't really need him at all. We'd be saving ourselves if such a thing were possible, and it is not. Otherwise, Jesus would not have come. So the final lifeline is the lifeline of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what we know is the cross of Jesus would have had no value if it wasn't for what happened on the third day. Here's a picture of the garden tomb. Anybody visited the garden tomb? Nobody can say for sure that this is the exact tomb of Jesus. We can't say for sure. It's, for me, there are a lot of good arguments for that. I don't need to stake my salvation on it because whether I can find the empty grave or not, Jesus is alive. If I, it only depends on me finding the grave. If, if me finding the grave makes him alive, then the whole thing's nonsense. But here's a very interesting tomb. Not far from Golgotha, just by Bethlehem Gate, that busy bus station. Anybody been there? And there in this beautiful place, we can think about what happened on the third day when the stone was rolled away and they came in, have a look on the inside and said, he's not here. He is risen. And being risen, it means that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. And because his sacrifice was acceptable to God, we are acceptable to God. How? By the only way, the new way, the living way, by the blood of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And the blood washes and cleanses from all sin. Thank you, Jesus. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We've been looking at basic truths, never ever embarrassed of simplicity because even the simplest truths of the gospel run so deep, so profound. And today I want you to enjoy this in a fresh way, what it means to have the security of the cross to abide under the shadow of the Almighty, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. All the other words of the great hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We understand that all those hymns and songs were inspired by this wonderful truth that when Jesus died, he died not for, ours, not for his sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. And there we can, by faith in him, draw down the benefits of his sacrifice. As we've been doing this morning in the communion service. As we do right now as we worship him. But wherever you are, I want to ask you a question. Have you personally ever personally said to Jesus, thank you for dying for me and I accept 
the salvation they are offering. See, because if the price is paid, that's fine. But, you know, unless you avail yourself of that, unless you take that, unless you draw on it, it's not going to work for you. It's just like having money in the bank but never using it and starving to death on the street. You've got to draw it down by faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's why John 3.16 says, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The blood of Jesus washes and cleanses from sin the moment you say, Jesus, be my Lord. Jesus, be my Savior. Thank you for dying for me. If you've never realized that before, or never prayed that prayer before, I'd like you to pray it now. Here it is, everybody, under the sound of my voice. Please all pray it together, but it's going to be especially for those who never prayed it before. You got it? Here it is, everybody, loud and strong. Lord Jesus Christ, I come to you now, and I thank you that you died in my place on the cross, that you carried my sin, my guilt, and my shame, that I might be covered and forgiven and blessed and restored and receive eternal life. I believe you. I put my trust in you. And I receive you now. Amen. If that's you, if you prayed that for the first time, I'm going to pray for you briefly before every, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you prayed for the first time and you really know you need Christ in your life, I'm going to pray for you before we finish today. Uh, but help me do that. I need you to help me do that. I want you to lift your hand. When I see it, I know I can pray for you. If that's you, lift your hand all over this place. Lift your hands all over this place. You say, yes, I need Jesus in my life today. As the cross of Jesus Christ has been preached and proclaimed. And you say, yes, I need Christ Lift your hand. Let me pray for you. Thank you. God bless you to my left. Is there somebody else? Lift your hand high so I can see it. Is there somebody else? Lift your hand high. Quickly now. Quickly now. Amen and amen. Downstairs in the low hall overflow, behind me, over the road, wherever you are. If you lifted your hand, you need Christ. Let me pray for you now. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask you to bless these people who have confessed openly that they need you. Come in to be their Lord and Savior. Wash them and cleanse them from sin. And let from this day onwards the joy of the Lord, the joy of forgiveness and of grace be their strength. Amen and amen. Give Jesus a mighty praise. God bless you.